ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Well, thank you for downloading another edition of Simon Mayer's Books of the Year, featuring another Book of the Year. Yes, it is. How, how apt our title. How well chosen. Who did choose it? I think it was you, wasn't it? No, 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 it wasn't. It was our esteemed producer, Producer Ben, ben yes. chose it, did he? he Good thought, idea. He thought of Books of the Year. Yeah. Uh, and Lee Child is on the way, who is one of those uh, authors, and I've interviewed him a number of times, and you've met him a number yes. of times, but he is, you can genuinely describe him as a phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, that I don't know anyone else, I think, who just writes one character. Ever. That's it. Nothing yes. else. No children's books, no non-fiction. Just writes Jack Reacher, 23 books, 150 million sold. It's quite extraordinary. And, and, and does it obviously very well, given those figures. But also is able to write, and I, I've said this so many times, it's such an underappreciated skill to write a true thriller, a book that you just cannot put down. Seems to me overlooked by so many people who are saying, oh, I want something that's really well written, or descriptions are off the charts, and all those kind of things are all very nice. Give me a thriller that I cannot put down. What a skill that is. Yes. And also, he says nice things about my book. Yes, he does. So, I mean, that didn't play any part in no, him coming on. No, absolutely not at all. <laughs> I'm just saying. Putting just it putting out it out there. Lee Charles likes uh, my book. On the emails, you can email us, uh, Books of the Year at yahoo.com. You can tweet us at Books of the Year. John Worthington, wasn't he the, isn't he an MP? John Worthington? Uh, no. Okay. I'm going to say no. And it's, even if it, it's, probably it's probably not probably him not anyway. Him. So, yeah, John writes, he's talking about Levinson's book, who was on uh, in our last show. Uh, remind, Levinson reminds me that my. Life has only been half-lived. I bet you never see him down oldie in the rain with a Waitrose carrier bag in his trolley. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I kind of think he probably would. Well, actually. yes. He's a kind of a man of the people, would Quite you say? Quite right. Levison came across as that. Yes. Uh, so this is uh, Levison Wood's book, which is Arabia. Yes, which was great. Yes, which, which we were talking about in a previous yeah. show. And, in fact, Levison would reply, didn't he? He replied to that to say, back in the day, I did. I used to turn my Primark plastic bag inside out. There you go. So yeah. thanks very much to, yeah. to Levison for getting involved. Indeed. Uh, Gordon H. on Twitter said, of all the podcasts I thought I might have mentioned Rotting Christ this weekend, you weren't exactly top of the list. This was this is the QI book of the year. Yes. Well, so th yes. This, is a, this is a reference to a death metal band. Yes. Uh, which is, uh, and they appear to be called Rotting Christ, which is why it came up in one of the facts, in case Correct. you just stumbled upon this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<laughs> well, know, this podcast has taken a turn. Yes, I know Matt likes his <laughs> metal, but really, this is because I don't think we ever played. No, no, Rotten Christ never turned up on any, Radio Two. I mean, any... we got Megadeth and Slayer on, but but never, yeah. never the Rotten Christ. Anyway, if you want to uh, send us any comments, send us uh, any thoughts, any suggestions. Please feel free. You can email booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Coming next, Lee Child. Okay, so we're all set here to talk to Lee Child. And the reason that we're all set is that we've got the book. Uh, Matt's here, Lee's here, and we've all got coffee. Oh, Because okay. it's sort of like it's, it's part of the deal, isn't it? It is. got to have coffee. That's, uh, you know, I don't do that thing about no brown M&Ms in my dressing room. <laughs> but as long as there's coffee, I'm happy, yeah. <laughs> How many coffees would you have on a, on a, on a writing day if you actually... If I was working, it would be somewhere between 30 and 40, probably. What? And uh, not cups either, you know, a tall mug of coffee. Yeah. It, 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 in the absence of an IV drip, I just got to keep going like that. I've got two coffee machines so that one is always ready while the other one is brewing. And, uh, yeah, you know, and then I stopped drinking coffee at about 10 at night and uh, I fall I fall asleep whenever I need to. How do you fall asleep if you're drinking well, coffee at 10 at night? Because you just stop drinking it and then you go to sleep. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Wow. I mean, that is, that is a story. And if you're out doing promotion like you are for, for the current book, does your coffee intake go down a little bit or...? It does sort of because you know I'm not I'm sort of physically prevented from getting more. But uh, we stop along the way. I've had I had a pot in my hotel room, then I had a Starbucks, then I had one at the BBC, and now I'm having another one here. So it's all good so far. <laughs> okay, well, just put your hand up if you need another one. You know we are speaking. I mean, it might be twenty minutes. You know it could be uh, it could be dangerous, but we are actually very near. A, we're in a place that has its own coffee bar, yes. so this is. Probably the ideal location yeah. for me. This is almost your favourite studio yeah, ever. Totally. <laughs> Already it's my favourite studio. You should see this studio. It's got great stuff in it, not just the coffee. But I'm also an audio freak, and I'm just uh, looking at the equipment that's been installed here, and it is wonderful. Do you write in silence? I do, because... Uh, I, th I think otherwise, I mean, for instance, Stephen King, in his book, he says he writes with loud rock music going, and I couldn't do that because it would impose somebody else's rhythms on me. And certainly if there were words, lyrics in the music, then you listen to somebody else's words, which I wouldn't like. So, yeah, I write in silence as much as New York is ever silent. You know, there's always banging and sirens and stuff like that, but no nothing structured. I remember Colson Whitehead talking about, uh, I loved the Underground Railroad from, was it last year, the year before? Yeah. And there's kind of, the amazing kind of final 30, 40 pages. And he said when he was writing that, he put on some, I can't remember what the music was, but really loud, kind of triumphant, mm -hmm. magnificent, ecstatic music. And I could imagine at that point, you know, when you all the issues have been resolved, it's just a question of getting it down on the page. Maybe at that point you might be tempted to put on yeah. a little bit of rock. Yeah, and certainly there are writers, you know, George Pelicanus, a friend of mine, he actually makes a playlist that he just plays over and over really? again to get into the period, get into the feel. I can sort of imagine doing it, but I'm nervous about, because to me, rhythm is incredibly important. The propulsive forward-moving rhythm of the, of, the, of the prose is really, really vital to me. And I'm not sure that music would interfere with that. Then I'm, somebody else's uh, tempo is being imposed. And aware that we haven't talked about the book or described the cover, but you just said something very interesting. I wonder, is that one of the kind of under-discussed reasons for your success, that actually there is that rhythm in the book, that actually we're not just being propelled by what Reacher is up to 
and who he's going to punch next or how he's going to unsolve this, uh, he's going to solve this particular knotty problem. But we're propelled also by that rhythm and your sentences and the cadence of everything that is coming out of your computer. I really think so, yeah, because you've got to bear in mind that for if you aim for a large audience, which, uh, you know, we all do because we all want to make a living, you, you aim for a large audience, you've got to think who's in that audience. Obviously, in the center of it, you've got expert readers, people that are totally familiar with books, read all the time, love to do that. But then as you move out, like the rings of Saturn, at the very edges, you've got people that maybe read one book a year um, on their holiday, and they're not really expert readers. It's something that they're not familiar with, and you've got to help those people. And I've had strange compliments. You know, you meet people in that category. They say, I loved your book. I finished it. And that is the biggest compliment they can pay you. You've made them feel good about themselves because you've helped them through the book. And I think absolutely you should do that. That the book has got to be, it's got to be invisible. It shouldn't be noticeable. But it's like getting into a car and a nice, fast, comfortable drive. You're not interested in the suspension and all the bits working underneath. You don't want to see that, but they've got to be there. Okay. Uh, fascinating stuff. Lee Child is talking about past tense. Matt, describe the cover here. Yes. So, fittingly, the, this book is, the, the front cover is dom dominated by autumnal colours. So, we've got uh, a man, the silhouette of a man, uh, walking through some woods. Uh, he's walking away from us. Um, but the light that is shining through this forest is, is bold and gold and oranges and rays coming down. And it's a particularly bright light, which will make a lot of sense the more you read of this book. But then uh, Lee Charles' name picked out in gold right at the top, uh, the title Past Tense, We All Need Jack Reacher, A Righteous Avenger for Our Troubled Times. Excellent. What a fine quote. What a fine quote that is. Uh, Lee, tell us, where is, uh, where, where is Jack? Where is he heading at the start of this book? Well, he's, he starts in Maine. He's, he's, it says he spent the last uh, couple of days of summer in Maine. And Reacher has very few rules. But one of his rules is he prefers to be warm in winter. So towards the end of the summer, he turns his attention to maybe drifting south, uh, staying with the temperature. And so he's planning, he has this ambitious plan, he's going to go diagonally across America from the state of Maine down to San Diego in, in the south of California. Uh, but he doesn't make it very far, he only makes it up to the next state, which is New Hampshire. And along the way, of course, he's walking, hitching and so on, he sees a road sign to the left is the obvious direction to go, to the right it says Laconia, which is a real town in New Hampshire, and Reacher recognizes that name because on old family paperwork on his dad's birth certificate and so on, Laconia is the place where his dad was born. Reacher's never been there. His dad never really talked about it much. But he thinks, oh, I'll take a day's detour. I'll go and see the place. Maybe I'll even find the house where he grew up. So he goes to Laconia. Um, in a logical way, he asks at the city office for, you know, records, property tax or something for a family called Reacher. And he's told there's no record of anybody called Reacher ever living here. So he's thinking, OK, what's going on? Meanwhile, there's a rather hopeless and hapless couple from Canada, from the north of Canada. And I did a bit of research for that, actually. I wanted to find out. Um, uh, I picked an arbitrary town up up in New Brunswick, and I needed to know what were 
the two main occupations in that town because I wanted this couple, wanted one of them to be one thing and the other to be the other thing. And apparently it's potato farming and sawmills are the big thing up in this particular town. But there was a glorious piece of research that I put in the book, and I love this sort of accidental finds that you do. The... Um, the biggest sensation in this town happened 10 years previously, and this is true, where a truck carrying 10 million bees overturned on a curve. And the local newspaper said with considerable pride, this is the first accident of its kind in New Brunswick. Wow! <laughs> you you wow. just cannot beat stuff like that, you know? No, that's true. And, and also, just as a kind of a... Uh, as a sidebar, you said, and I did some research on that because when I've spoken to you before, you all, your basic writing style is you just start to write and you just go off on the adventure and you see where the adventure takes you. So was that an unusual thing for you to start looking up this couple in New Brunswick and the kind of life that they might be having? Slightly unusual. I, I wanted to just nail down what would be their occupations, mm. which is why I checked it out. But, yeah, I mean, it's not that I'm lazy about it. It's not that I disparage research. It's just that I think that if you suddenly do research that year for that year's book, it's going to be too fresh and too undigested and you're going to get that sensation that I think we've all had with certain books where you're reading them and you can practically hear the author between the lines saying, I've done the research, so I'm going to put it in whether I need it or not. Yeah. And you've you, you got to avoid that. I mean, you know this, your book, you were interested in that story presumably for years and years and years. And so it had percolated. It had settled into what was important and what wasn't. And that's what you need to do with research. You can't do it too fresh. You've got to rely on stuff that you've known for years so that the um, the balance, it's got to be like an iceberg. You know, you're going to use 10% of it. You're going to ditch 90% of it. But you need to know which is which. So just just explain what happens to, to Paddy and Shorty. We spent a lot of time with Paddy and Shorty. Explain where they are and what's happened to them now. Yeah, they, they are heading down from this remote town in Canada. They're trying to drive in one day all the way to New York City because they've got something expensive to sell that is going to fund the, the next stage of their life. But, of course, because they are poor, they have an old, old car that's no good, and it breaks down in New Hampshire. Actually, coincidentally, not all that far from where Reacher is. The car breaks down and they have to put up at a lonely motel in the woods. And we know right away that uh, there's got to be something wrong with this motel. But we don't know what it is. It seems okay on the surface, but we know there's going to be something creepy about it. And I did that because with Reacher starting out in Maine, I just wrote the word Maine and then into my head pops Stephen King, who lives up in Maine. And I thought, ah, oh, maybe I should do it like a Stephen King strand in this book. And so <laughs> Patty right. and Shorty are my attempt at doing a sort of Stephen King scenario. Yeah, so a little bit of a horror inflection in terms of the, the setup anyway. Yeah, and, and Stephen's so good at that, you know. He, he can, the most boring daily quotidian sort of thing, 
Stephen can do, and you know there's menace in it. And you know that even though he's describing the most ordinary day, you know something really bad is going to happen. That's, that is what I love at the centre of your books, Lee. I mean, the, the menacing thing in this one is a cotton bud. As soon as the <laughs> cotton bud turns up, which is, you can't think of a, a, a less menacing household item, but goodness me, once that turns up, you go, oh, right, there is something seriously wrong going on here. And I, I know, having read others of your books and devoured them, that often there is just a one small factor that drives the story. I remember when I read um, Make Me that um, Jack decides to stay in a certain town based on the way that another man shakes another man's hand. Just the way he shakes his hand makes him want to stay in that town. And I, I thought, what a, what a great basis for that's how I'm going to thread my thriller. And I, so what I want to talk to you about from this book is bird watching because I, I know you uh, you mentioned in the in the author's note um, that birds flying south for the winter was was something that was the sort of almost the starting point. But I want to talk to you about those those sort of minor things that to us are quotidian that are everyday but are driving your thrillers. Yeah, I love stuff like that because otherwise you run into the danger of, of constant inflation, you know, that if you have a thriller where he discovers a nuclear bomb, you know, what are you going to do with the next one? <laughs> he discovers two nuclear bombs. What are you going to do with one after that, you know? Uh I, I want to stay away from that kind of mindless piling on. And so I love the small, tiny detail. And I think it, it's a way of characterizing Reacher himself, that he is capable of noticing small details like that. And in this book, it, uh, The Cotton Bud, yeah, it's Patty that finds that. And she's a little bit like Reacher in a way. She 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 understands the implication. And Shorty doesn't. You know, she gets very exasperated with him. Uh, she says, look at this. And he says, yeah, it's a cotton bud. And that's not the point. You know, the point is, why is it there? She's understood that he hasn't. And so if you can kick off the whole strand with something as as harmless or as ordinary as a cotton bud, that's a lot better than a nuclear bomb because it's sort of more intriguing. It's certainly more sinister. I'm really glad that you had that reaction because the idea that yeah, you can be really scared when you see a cotton bud. That, <laughs> that shows it's working. And I, I wonder, Lee, if when you walked into this studio, whether you... I just, when Jack seems to notice so much, and he certainly hears everything. And I wonder if you are particularly acute, whether your senses are hyper... I don't know, whether you walked into this studio and you noticed... Uh, the the microphones in the box in the corner, you know, the old turntables behind you, in a way that other people just wouldn't. Because the way you write Jack, like a door would open, and most people would say the door opened, but you hear the sound of the door opening, and maybe it's dragging on the mat underneath. All those kind of tiny little details seem to be really, really important. They are to me, yeah, absolutely. And the way we're sitting now, my back is to the room, and I'm kind of fed up about that. I wish I could be looking <laughs> at what's in the room because I do find it endlessly fascinating. Um, you know, what's here, why, who chose it, what for, uh, what are they trying to do? Um, and I think when you're writing, yeah, the five senses, you, you've got to remember there are five senses, and hearing is a really important part of it. Um, smell is a really important part of it. There aren't all that many books that depend on smell, but we, we're we very alert to that. We There should be more of it in books. Yeah. you make, There's one reference... Uh, 
in the book where Jack walks into a house he's just come upon uh, in the woods. And I think you say something like, it smelt like someone else's house. Yes. yeah, we're and tra- Which, of course, isn't a smell. And yet everybody goes, yeah, everyone else's house smells <laughs> weird. Yes, exactly. And I, I'd love to do that. Something that is absolutely ordinary, because everybody experiences that every day. And yet very few people point it out. But it is. When you walk into somebody else's house, there is a whole bouquet of different odors that combine and it's not the same as yours it's not the same as anybody else's yeah can you just do uh, talk about jack's hearing because it's relevant there's a, there's a couple of times where he's woken up uh, i think it's at three o'clock uh, mm. in the morning because there's something that he's heard and he's not quite sure what it is but again these are your senses i think and his senses really kind of finely tuned yeah there's a point there's a one night where he wakes up and he's not sure why and he goes through it in his head that uh, and this is something that happened to me once actually we were in france we have a house in the south of france and uh, we were there in the, in the summer and sleeping with the windows open because it's, you know, just beautiful, soft air at night there. And we were both sound asleep, and then instantly, instantly, we woke up as if an alarm clock had gone off. And it was because about 40 or so miles away, there was a forest fire, and we could smell the smoke. And it was very interesting to me how instantly we woke up. This this was not, um, you know, just normal. It was an ancient, ancient instinct that must date back millions of years to our evolution, where we would not be here if our ancestors had not woken up when there was a a forest fire or a fire on the savannah or wherever we were living. It's deeply baked in. So Richard wakes up, but he doesn't know why he's woken up, and he goes through it in his mind. Obviously nothing to do with taste or touch because he's in bed alone. Um, he, he realizes it must be sound, and he thinks, well, yeah, but what kind of sound is enough to wake a person up from a deep sleep in that very atavistic way? And he figures it must have been a cry for help, but it, it doesn't come again. He doesn't hear it again. He goes back to sleep until the next night. And it happens again anyway. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, an- another reason why I love this book, and I, I've loved the other Jack Reaches, is they absolutely fulfil the criteria of a thriller. They need to be thrilling. And there, it is astonishing to me the number of thrillers I read that don't thrill me, but this this absolutely does. And what I found myself thinking as I was reading this is this very much a slow-build thriller, which is obviously enormous fun to enjoy. But I wonder when you're writing it, are you thinking of the reader consuming it in one, which I was very close. I had to stop myself from, from reading this in one one big splurge. I wanted to spread it over a couple of days. Or do you see them doing it, do it in, in, in stages? Uh, I think you've got to accommodate both, mm-hmm. uh, both types of reader, to be honest, because um, the modern world doesn't give people time necessarily to read it all in one sitting or even two. You know, people these days, generally speaking, read on the tube to work or they grab 15 minutes at the lunch hour and then they read on the way home and then maybe 20 minutes before they go to sleep again. And so you've got to take every habit into account. And for those people that read in a very fragmented way, you've got to make you've got to be aware that you keep it clear, you know, because when they pick up the book, it might be many hours since they last were reading it, and you don't want them thinking, who is this guy? Who is that guy? You've got to keep it clear and linear for the people that read in a fragmented way. 
But then, yeah, some people read it all in one sitting. Uh, some people read it in two days. And I've got to say that that is the biggest imbalance in this whole business. You know, it takes me five or six months to write it and people are, are getting through it in a day. It seems unfair to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's annoying. And then they're asking for, uh, asking for the next one. Was there anything about the writing of this particular Jack Reacher novel, Lee, that surprised you? You know, uh, do you surprise yourself in your writing? Oh, OK, I wasn't expecting it to go in, in that particular term, but I'm, enjoy- but I'm really enjoying it. Oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, I shouldn't really say this when we're promoting a Jack Reacher book, but what surprised me is how little a Reacher is in the book. I mean, it's really patty and shorty. Mm. They took over the book for me. I, I expected Reacher's intervention to come a lot earlier because that would be normal. But they were fine by themselves. I was really enjoying them. And Well, when uh, you say they're fine by themselves, they're, <laughs> they're not really fine. Well, they're in they? deep, deep trouble. But they, exactly. Yeah, they're in really serious trouble. But they show considerable spark in getting themselves out of trouble. Even Shorty, who's was a bit thick. He's the potato farmer. He's a bit <laughs> thick. But he surprises us all in the end. He comes through in a pretty big way. But, um, yeah, you know, as you said a while ago, I have no plan. I have no expectation about it. I just write and see what happens. And what happened was I loved those two. And they they dominated the story for much longer than I thought they they uh, they would. They did need help at the end. I must say, Richard showed up just in the nick of time. But they were doing pretty good up until that point. Does Richard ever surprise you? He does, although, you know... That is a it's a it's a deep concept. What does that actually mean? You know, because I'm typing. Um, I invented the guy. How can he actually really surprise me? Because he doesn't exist, really. But what it is, it's a kind of code word for you're just not a hundred percent in the zone. You you're writing you may be at ninety-eight percent, you're not thinking quite hard enough. And what it is, it's your subconscious saying, nah, he wouldn't do that. And so that part is surprise. That's what we mean when we say, yeah, the character takes over. The character surprised us. It means that we, our subconscious says, hang on a minute, mate. Pay more attention. You're screwing this up. Is that, is that based on the logic of what you've previously established in all your previous books? And your subconscious is saying, I remember all, all of those. And if you're going to follow the logic through, which maybe goes back to the point you were making about the film Seven when we were doing the Q&A. If you follow that through, then this has to change. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, not just logic, though, emotion as well, the emotional shape of the character. The, the one scene I remember really where he allegedly did surprise me was from a book years ago where he uh, he's already dispatched some goons who are running a protection racket on, on a restaurant. He's, he's, um, he's injured them fairly badly in, in true Reacher style. And then a couple of days later, he realizes, actually, those guys have got more to tell me. So he finds them. And in my mind, at the time, I remember thinking, yeah, he's going to burst into this apartment. He's going to smack them around a bit and he's going to get the answers that he needs. But then when I came to it, he just would not do that because these guys were already injured. They were rather pathetic. You know, they were shuffling around their apartment all bruised and banged up and stiff, wearing carpet slippers. And Reach is not going to smack people around under those circumstances. He's going to interrogate them a little more sensitively. And so, yeah, that did take me by surprise. And it's because I wasn't 100% connecting with the emotional trajectory that I'd, uh, I'd invented before. So when when you are being surprised by Jack, when when the, the the twists and turns he's taking are throwing you off, 
are you going through as many drafts as other writers are going through, or or is it, or is this just one? You're you're basically sitting down and going, no, this is what this is what's going to happen. Yeah, I don't do multiple drafts. I only do one draft, but I, I I'm very alert to when I'm going down the wrong path. I can catch it within three or four words, probably, um, wow. so that I don't waste a lot of time or waste a lot of words. But yeah, it's to me, it's part of the idea of spontaneously inventing the story as I go along that you can't then go back and, and revise it because that's somehow dishonest. You know, this is what happened and you can't change that afterwards. Uh, we're talking to Lee Child. His current book is Past Tense. And more after this. It's Books of the Year and uh, Lee Child has another Jack Reacher thriller. It's called past tense uh, and we do this is called books of the year and you do one a year and that's pretty much where you are <laughs> Lee, isn't it and that's it is yeah and one a year and people think wow one a year but you know compared to what i used to do in television where the deadline you know it's mostly live stuff and the deadline was zero or um you know a minute maybe a deadline of one a year is is a luxury and i, I love it and it's People think I'm this grizzled old veteran now because I've got 23 books. But if you go back a generation, the thriller writers of then, they were doing hundreds of books. You know, they would probably do 10 or 15 a year. And so <laughs> I have it really easy. Uh, some, some listeners' questions um, that, that come in. Kathy Wayman has a quick question. She says, can Reacher fall for a decent-sized woman, not the normal stick insects that he tends to because he's so fickle? <laughs> is there any, any truth in that? Yeah, I mean, that is my fault completely because I'm sitting there for six or seven months writing a book and I'm, I'm inventing characters in my head. And if I'm going to spend six or seven months with an imaginary woman, she's going to be really cute. But I'm totally aware of what she's saying there and, and I completely... Uh, I, I completely agree. Yeah, they do not have to be supermodels. Absolutely not. And in, I remember in Make Me... Uh, which was a couple of years ago, I, I deliberately made the woman big. You know, she was a big, substantial woman that probably would not be a supermodel. And I did that because, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they don't have to be one size or shape. They, I want real women. Okay. Jer Jeremy Fisher has asked, why is... Well, the, the Jeremy Fisher? Jeremy Fisher. As in, as in Beatrix Potter. As in Beatrix Potter, yes, that Jeremy Do you Fisher. Think he, he must have, his parents must have known. Yeah, no, clearly. Jeremy Fisher. If you're, if you're the Fishers, then you call your son Jeremy. Um, why, obviously, two books have been made into, into movies of the Jack Reachers. Plans for more, or is that something you have any uh, impact on, or what? Well, yeah, here's the, uh, and I'm really happy to be here delivering this news is that we, we have a change coming up, which is that. Uh, in the movie original movie contract, and that deal dates back to uh, 2005, um, a long time ago now, but there was a clause put in that when we've done two movies, uh, it's up to me to say whether we do any more. And although I loved both movies, I, I respect them both very much. I loved working with Cruise. Tom Cruise is, is a lovely guy. Um, we had so much fun. He was a real inspiration to watch working. Very smart guy about story, very hard worker. Having said all of that, I, I, I honestly think that um, he lacks the physicality that Reacher needs. Um, and millions of readers have pointed that out to me. And I'm going to say, yeah, I agree with you. So there will be no more movies with Tom Cruise. We just last week, 
uh, did a deal to take it to long-form television, uh, you know, binge-watching, streaming type. We don't know exactly what channel it'll end up on yet because there are multiple people interested. But it's going to be, you know, a 10, 12-hour season now per book that um, that you can stream and binge, and it will have a new actor. So we are going to hopefully involve all, all the readers who have been um, less than satisfied with the movies. We, we hope to involve them in helping us choose the actor. Um, you know, send us suggestions, uh, tell us what you think of a short list or something like that. I kind of think that, I, and everyone will have their own version, even though there aren't enormous uh, detailed descriptions, we kind of know what we think. We know how heavy he is and we know how tall he is. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of it. I kind of want him to be someone I've never seen before. Absolutely. I could not agree more. I would love that to happen. And it might happen in television because television is so much less star-driven than the movies that I think we probably could do that. We could find a complete unknown who is perfect and uh, go with that. I would love that to happen. Yeah. That just I mean, everyone will have their own opinion about that but uh because that which is fantastic for you because they'll feel very strongly and i can imagine people listening to this uh now sort of punching the air thinking that's it that's the that's the kind of that's what i wanted you know that 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 feels exactly the way i imagine reacher might be yeah and I, i'm sure it'll work and it's really the product of the fact that the movie deal happened in 2005 you know these things are historic they stick around forever and in 2005 there really was none of this television stuff like we have now. An awful lot has happened very recently. And if you were doing a deal today, you would obviously go to television rather than the movies. Um, so it's a, it's a timing thing, and I'm glad that we're able to reboot yeah. at this point. But how great that people... I mean, we had this conversation with Ian Rankin, who uh, you're doing a, a chat with, I yeah. think, think, tomorrow. People feel passionately about Rebus, and how great that they care oh. so much that when the casting goes wrong, they're yeah, outraged. Yeah. yeah. Well, how great that is. It is. I mean, that is an absolute metaphor for success. It's, you know, if somebody had told me 20 years ago I was going to invent a character that people would get upset about <laughs> who played them in the movies, I would say, yeah, I'll take that deal. I'm intrigued by something you've just said about how how great it is to be able to go to TV now. Because as you, as you rightly say, probably 10, 15 years ago, the pinnacle would be, oh, yes, my book's being made into a movie. But now the 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 amount of the, the breadth or uh, of opportunities you have as far as TV is concerned has completely changed it and also means that that TV show will be, say, like 10 episodes long, so that's 10 hours devoted to this material that means you can get so much more in. Yeah, it's very character-based. It's much more patient. It's uh, it's a whole different art form. You don't have to compress everything into uh, an hour and a half. And from looking at it from the inside, there are technical things that, for instance, when you're making a movie, every minute of every day is you're worrying about the rating. Is it PG or is it R rated? Um, and for for material like Reacher, you know, that's a constant battle because, uh, you know, if Reacher hits somebody, that's sort of okay. But if there's a little blood, that's not okay. So every minute of every day is like, can we get away with this? Should we play it safe? And that doesn't happen in cable television. Uh, broadcast, yeah, of course, there are standards that you have to meet. But for cable and, and streaming, no, you, you've got complete liberty. You do what the show needs. You don't have to worry about the censor. 
Can I ask you um, about a little bit about technology? It comes a, a bit into uh, into this uh, story, uh, into past tense, because uh, Jack is finding out his family tree, and so he rather ineptly handles a you know a laptop, a computer, you know that kind of thing. But there is another issue, which is that in the in the era of uh, when everyone has a camera uh, pointing all the time, it occurred to me halfway through this story: Why isn't Jack famous? You know, why hasn't he? Would he not be filmed? Would a blogger not have picked up on a story and thought, "Hang on, let's," do, you know, he would be a he would be a star, wouldn't he? He he might be, although he's you know hard to track down. And um, I think the view from Britain is is sort of different from America, in as much as Britain has is just bristling with cameras. Uh, I believe something like a quarter of all the CCTV cameras in the world are in London. What? Uh, the wow. huge, huge proportion. It's immense. And, and there are fewer of them in the States. And, and reach is hard to track down. But the technology question is really interesting because in this book, yeah, he, he's a bit fingers and thumbs with the computer. And then there are a couple of issues where he's going in and out of cell phone coverage, which is, uh, you know, that's our equivalent now of... You remember those old books where you're desperate to call the police and, and oh, great, there's a payphone at the end of the street, so you run down there, but the cord has been cut and all of that. You have to find ways around those issues. But I also think maybe people find it reassuring to have stories that are slightly behind the curve in terms of technology because in their regular life, people are battling technology all day long. They don't really want to read a book where it's all about technology. So I think... People find it comforting if you are a few years out of date in your technology in a thriller because it just makes it a lot easier. One thing that we have to mention, Lee, because the last time I saw you, you gave me a CD, okay? <laughs> and you gave me a CD of music. Uh, and we were hinting just a little bit about it because we're in, in, in studios and there's technology and there's a beautiful sound system over there. Uh, explain what you're, what you're doing in this uh, a slight shift in your career structure, I think. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, so it, this for me is a total bucket list item, and it's, <laughs> it starts. It's it starts a long time ago, like twenty one years ago. I heard a track on a CD that I. It was a cover version of an original that I knew really well, and I would have said it was an impossible song to cover. But the cover version was fabulous, just brilliant. And I thought, wow. And it was a band called Naked Blue, and I had never heard of them before. And this was before Google and the internet, so I had no way of finding out about them. So I, I kept it in mind, and every time I was in a record shop, I would look, and sure enough, I found an album and then a second album. And for me, they became a, a sort of pop, a go-to band. When I was in a certain sort of mood, I would put on their CDs and really, really enjoy them. And then completely unconnected with that, about five years later into when I'd become a, a writer, I got a fan letter from a married couple in Baltimore saying... Um, we love your books, so, so on and so forth. And there was something about the letter that led me to reply to it. So we had a little brief correspondence. And they said, actually, we're coming to New York for work. Uh, would you like to grab a drink? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. Where are you going to be? And they said, well, we're a band called Naked Blue. What? And we're playing in Greenwich Village. It, the most amazing coincidence. Wow. And we, this was 15 years ago. We became friendly. And right away, we, we were all saying, we should do an album. I'll write the lyrics. They can do the music. <laughs> and, of course, they're busy working musicians. I'm a busy working writer. It took us 15 years to get it together. But we've finally done it. We have an album called Just the Clothes on My Back. And it's basically an album of Reacher songs. Uh, I wrote the lyrics, they did the music. 
I listened to it the other day before I, I left home for this tour, and it's really good. You know, I'm really, really happy with it. And it is a thrill to have been involved in it because all writers secretly want to be musicians. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so finally I've got an album. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's a great listen. I think there were four tracks on the CD that you gave me and it was very entertaining and we had a great... And that was the sampler, yeah. You yeah. Got the, the, new, the, the actual album has ten tracks, one of which is, is Killing Floor, uh, just to celebrate the first book, you know, the old Howlin' Wolf song, beautifully done. And uh, I'm very proud of it, yeah. What kind of music is it? It's called a Roots uh, sort of Americana. It's uh, you know, just basically uh, rock and roll, sort of slightly country tinged. There's, a, there's one great ballad, my favourite song. Uh, it's called Sanctuary. Um, works really well. Uh, it was a thrill to do it. And I, I've played a couple of gigs with them um in the last couple of weeks and uh yeah th so maybe maybe i'm going to change my career become a <laughs> rock and roll star uh lee child it's always a pleasure to have you on the uh, have you uh, in any interview in any studio uh whether it's got full tech or or nothing but uh, it's always a pleasure to talk thank you very much thank you so thanks to uh, Lee Child for coming in. I'm interviewing him again. In, in really? In, yeah. Anyway, but he's he's a really nice guy, and we did we only gave him one coffee. Yes, he but, managed to get through, didn't he? Yeah. 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 Have you ever met anyone who has that amount of coffee and it's lives? A well, it's astonishing when he said astonishing diet, and then says that he lives on cigarettes and twenty uh, or thirty <laughs> large. Mu that's twenty. I mean, that's pints. That's gallons. I mean, Genuinely, I, gallons of black coffee. I like my. I thought I drank. I. I feel. I feel so much better about my life now, knowing that I only have Thank five you, coffees. You know, yes. and interesting stuff that he was saying. Uh, I think. He'd mentioned the the live stream, the, the the new streaming, the idea of doing Jack Reach on TV. I think he mentioned it on New Zealand television, of course, which I am permanently glued to uh, New Zealand TV. Um, but I I tell you what I love about that is the idea that uh, they are they are putting out a blank slate as far as who should be Jack Reach. I like the idea of going for someone com a complete un unknown. Uh, but the idea that you know readers, because I I've got a, 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 a interestingly the actor I always have in my mind when I'm reading Jack Reacher is Kevin Costner. But Kevin Costner from probably about no, five, ten years ago. Way too feeble. He's not. No, Kevin Costner. No, Kevin Costner from ten years ago easily could be Jack Reacher. Definitely. No, yes. he absolutely yes, he couldn't could. be. Yes. I saw in that new Superman movie from a couple of years ago, definitely that Kevin Costner could play him. Definitely. No, he couldn't. <laughs> he, I just think he's... So, OK, so not Kevin Costner then. So not Kevin Costner from 10 years ago. You're just going to go for unknown. Yes, oh, I am. I'm I am so looking forward to being for right on this. Uh, anyway, so this, we did a Q&A with Lee, which is going to come out in a couple of days' time, mm -hmm. uh, which is very revealing and very thoughtful. And you'll, I think you'll learn a lot about Lee and about writing and about what he thinks about stuff. Uh, and our next main guest is going to be the aforementioned Ian Rankin. Oh, yes. He's sold a I, few, hasn't he? Oh, he has sold a few. I finished his latest about two or three days ago. And there's another book where I have to put it down. I've got other stuff to do. No, I'll just have one more chapter. Ian Rankin, coming soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. 
We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.